0: Let us pray. Our gracious God and our great high priest, we thank you uh, that you have ascended into the heaven and where you are, there we are with you by your spirit. We praise you for giving us your spirit. We praise you uh, for, for preserving your word for us and ask now that Your Spirit would be present to bless the reading and preaching of Your Word, that our hearts might be illumined, that our faith might be strengthened, and that we might be consecrated as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to You. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, I didn't plan it this way, but it's a great day for a sermon about clouds. Hopefully the clouds will clear in time for our picnic, but even if it was a sunny day, it would still be a great day for a sermon about clouds, because it's Ascension Sunday. The Ascension story features clouds. It seems like sort of a passing uh, narrator's comment about the weather that day, but If you read in uh, Scripture about different accounts and different passages related to the ascension, we come to see that the presence of clouds is far more important than just a meteorological uh, evaluation or setting the scene for us. It's not just coincidence that a cloud received Jesus into heaven. If you think about... Clouds in the Bible, there are are, are many stories where clouds are important in Scripture. What's the other place that we see a lot of clouds? We read from Exodus that clouds were very, very important to the story of the Exodus. The story of the journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. Clouds played a very important role. And I think... Luke is, and the other Gospel writers are giving us a clue here that we need to think of of the ascension in terms of the Exodus. One other uh, maybe subtle clue that Luke gives us here in Acts 1 uh, is that he says that Jesus presented Himself to the disciples after His resurrection for 40 days. Acts 1 is the only place that records that little mention of 40 days. Other uh, accounts say for many days, but Luke tells us in Acts 1 specifically that it was 40 days from the resurrection to the ascension. I don't think that's an accident because if you study all the other places that 40 days or 40 years uh, appear in Scripture, many of those also have to do with the Exodus. Moses' life, the life of Israel, the life of Joshua are all uh, surrounded, saturated with references to 40 days or 40 years. Now, of course, these subtle clues are not the only uh, hint that we have, that we should read the Ascension in light of the Exodus, right? Because Luke in chapter 9, in his account of the Transfiguration, has already spilled the proverbial beans when he said that Jesus went up on the mountain of Transfiguration and was talking with Moses, hint, hint, and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of Jesus' Exodus, which He was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. We often only associate that, maybe, I don't know about you, but it seems like we it's automatic to think of Jesus' crucifixion in terms of the Exodus because He was executed on the, pa- the Feast of Passover. That's an obvious one. But what about His resurrection? What about His ascension? And what about Pentecost? Well, today I want to explore two different themes that connect uh, the 40 days uh, between the resurrection and the ascension with the exodus. I've just picked two. There, there are plenty more uh, that uh, we could look at, but there are two that I want to focus on. One of them is found in Acts 1, the passage we just read, the account of the ascension, the other one is found at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Let's start with the one in Matthew 28. We didn't read this passage, but it's probably uh, familiar enough to you. Matthew's, the end of Matthew's Gospel is very concerned with Jesus going ahead of His disciples to Galilee. Four times, four times at the end of Matthew's Gospel, there is instruction or mention of Jesus going ahead of His disciples to Galilee. This was so important that Jesus actually gave this command at the Last Supper. He says, after I'm raised from the dead, I'm going to go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. When the women show up at the empty tomb and Jesus' body is not there, they encounter angels. And one of the things that the angels instruct them to do is to go tell the disciples to meet Jesus in Galilee. And then those same women are rushing off to tell the disciples that Jesus is alive and that He's going ahead of them to Galilee. Jesus Himself meets with these women, and says again, Go tell my disciples that I'm alive and I'm going ahead of them to Galilee. And then Matthew gives us this detailed account of the Great Commission, which took place on a mountain in Galilee. You get the idea that Matthew's very concerned about Jesus going ahead of his disciples and meeting them on a mountain in Galilee. Why why is this such a prominent part of Matthew's Gospel? Why is Jesus so concerned with meeting His disciples in Galilee? Because really, if you think about it, by the time they got up to Galilee, Jesus had already met with His apostles numerous times on Easter Sunday, on Resurrection the day of the resurrection. Jesus had, had already met with most of His apostles and many of His disciples, and then He met with Thomas and the apostles the next week. It was probably He had probably seen most of those people already. Why send them 50 miles north to Galilee to meet with them there? If you think about it, if you look at the map and where they're going and what they're doing and where Jesus is appearing... It seems like Jesus is sending his uh, disciples on a wild goose chase all over Palestine. Meet me here, uh, 50 miles north, and then go back down to Jerusalem for the ascension and wait there. There's a lot more that could be said uh, about the reasoning for that. I think if Jesus had tried to gather a big crowd of disciples near Jerusalem, it wouldn't have gone over well. I think that's one reason. But I think the movement of Jesus in going, the idea of Jesus going ahead and meeting His disciples on a mountain I think is an important uh, connection to the Exodus. Think about, think about the the glory cloud and the pillar of fire that we see prominent in the account of the Exodus. When the children of Israel lead Israel leave Egypt, they're led and protected by God's glory cloud. The pillar of fire guides them uh, to the Red Sea, uh, where they're to cross the Red Sea. And when Pharaoh's army catches up, that glory cloud comes behind the people and separates them, protects them from the Egyptian army overnight until The sea is parted and they can cross. And then, once they cross the Red Sea, they go to a mountain, Mount Sinai, where God's glory comes down on the mountain and they meet with God through Moses on the mountain. After uh, they leave Mount Sinai, they've built the tabernacle and it's God's glory cloud that descends on the tabernacle. And every time... Uh, the, the glory cloud lifts up from the sanctuary. They break camp and they follow the glory cloud until it settles down again. And that's where they set up camp. And so all throughout their journey to the to the promised land, they're following God's glory cloud. They're being led by God through the wilderness. And one of the just little interesting things side notes that I think is worth noticing in Exodus 13 uh, is this just amazing little comment uh, that is included for us about the route that uh, the Israelites took. It says in Exodus 13:17 that God didn't lead the people directly the shortest way to the promised land. Instead, he purposely took them the long way around, down by the Red Sea, down to Sinai, and then up to the Promised Land because they weren't ready for war. They weren't ready to go straight to the Promised Land and face what lay what uh, lie ahead. What lay ahead? They were not prepared yet, and so God purposely took them the long way around, leading them with His cloud, His glory cloud. Here's the analogy, I think. After His resurrection, Jesus' actions have an unmistakable resemblance to the glory cloud in the Exodus. Jesus is meeting His disciples here. He's meeting them there. He's sending them up north and says, I'll meet you. I'm going ahead of you to Galilee. I'll meet you on a mountain in Galilee. And then He sends them back. And then He's actually received up into the cloud. This shouldn't surprise us that Jesus is associated with the glory cloud of God. Already in Luke's Gospel, Luke has recorded for us the song of Zechariah where Jesus is called the glory of Israel. Paul describes Jesus as the glory of God. All of these, I think, are references to the glory of God uh, that we see in the sanctuary and in the Exodus. This pattern continues, though, after the ascension. Throughout the book of Acts, if you read the book of Acts with this idea in mind, you'll see that the apostles continue to experience this idea that Jesus has gone ahead of them, that Jesus is preceding them everywhere they go. The apostles are imprisoned and then miraculously, they're set free from the prison. Jesus met them there and went ahead of them into the prison and set them free. Stephen was stoned and Jesus was there. Stephen caught a glimpse of Christ in heaven. Peter was sent to Cornelius' house where God had already prepared Cornelius and his household to receive the Gospel. Saul was on his errand to persecute the church and Jesus was already there in front of him. He was already there ahead of him and appeared to him and converted him. James was imprisoned and killed by Herod, but Jesus was there ahead of him. Peter was imprisoned and he was rescued, but Jesus was ahead of him there as well. Paul went to Philippi to preach the gospel, and a woman named Lydia, it says in Acts 16, that God had opened her heart to believe the message of Paul. Jesus had gotten there before Paul. Paul and Silas were imprisoned. And the earthquake uh, broke open the doors of the prison. Paul and Silas found out that Jesus had gotten there before them. Paul was opposed by Jews in Corinth, but Jesus appeared to Paul in a vision and said, stay here and minister in Corinth. And Paul figured out that Jesus had gotten to Corinth ahead of him and was there with him. When Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, Jesus stood by by Paul and encouraged him. When Paul was on the ship in the middle of the storm, an angel of the Lord appeared. And Paul knew that Jesus was there with them. When John was exiled to the island of Patmos, he had a vision uh, of Jesus in His glory and he realized that Jesus, the risen Christ, had preceded him there. This is not just uh, a pattern that we see in the New Testament, but this is a truth that we see in our own lives as well. You can't go anywhere that Jesus hasn't already been there first. You can't enter any situation where the risen Christ has not already preceded you there and has met you there. We often say that God is always on time, but never late. But I think it's more accurate to say that Jesus is always early. We just don't usually recognize His presence until later. God has always, throughout all of history, God has been sovereign and omnipresent. But now that we are united with Christ, and now that Jesus has poured out His Spirit on the church, there is a, a new sense in which Jesus is with us in every situation. We've always been preceded by the risen Christ. We've always been anticipated by the risen Jesus. He goes ahead of us like that glory cloud before the people of Israel, preparing the way for us, meeting us in every circumstance, and in every situation. In sorrow and in success. In trial and in triumph. In affliction and in blessing. In every situation of our lives that we find ourselves in, the risen Christ is always present with us by His Spirit. And because we have the promise of the risen and exalted Christ, we can be confident that He is not only with us, He has not only preceded us, but He is transforming our sorrows and our trials and afflictions into glory. He's preparing us for glory. He's leading us to glory. It seems this idea that... uh, I don't know if it's ever struck you as odd that we should celebrate the ascension. We should celebrate uh, Jesus leaving us. Uh, Of course, Jesus told us that it was a good thing that He should go away so that the Spirit could come. But it does still seem odd that Jesus should promise never to leave us or forsake us just as He gets ready to make His grand exit. But the great mystery of the ascension is that Jesus' departure actually brings us closer to God than ever before. Jesus' absence from us here on earth actually brings us into God's presence. And so the paradox of the ascension is that though the apostles saw Him go, Jesus wasn't leaving them behind in the sense... That we as God's people ascend with Christ and are seated with Him in heaven. That Jesus is our forerunner who has opened the way into heaven for us and one day will consummate the union of heaven and earth. So we see that Jesus is like this glory cloud in the book of Exodus. Jesus is the glory of God. He is the Shekinah glory he is leading his people he is leading his church he is preceding you and i everywhere we go but luke also mentions for us in acts 1 that it was a cloud that took jesus up out of the sight of the apostles no other account of the ascension includes that detail either that a cloud received jesus We've already seen that the account of the Exodus is filled with clouds. Divine clouds are all over uh, the book of Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus. But consider what the cloud means for us in terms of our proximity to God. Consider these uh, similarities and these differences, these analogies between... The clouds in Exodus and the clouds here in the ascension. Moses ascended Mount Sinai when the cloud came down on the mountain. Jesus ascends to the heavenly Mount Zion when the cloud descended to receive Him. As we read in Exodus 24, Moses and the 70 elders, they ate a peace offering in God's presence. But Jesus ushers all of His people, ushers His church into the heavenly sanctuary to feast in God's presence every Lord's Day. Think about this too, that Moses entered the cloud and what did he come back with? Moses came down with the law of God, God's gracious gift of His law for His people. But when Jesus entered the cloud, He poured out His Spirit on His people. When Moses went up into the cloud on Mount Sinai, he received instructions for building the tabernacle, the earthly dwelling of God with his people. But when Jesus ascended into heaven, he entered into the heavenly sanctuary, the new, and he gave his apostles instructions for building not the earthly tabernacle, but the new living temple, the church. Think about the the priesthood as we read from Hebrews 7. The Levitical priests were once a year, the high priest would enter into the holy place, the most holy place where the glory cloud of God dwelled to make atonement for the sins of the people. Every year they had to do this. But after offering Himself as our atonement, Jesus enters the glory cloud And He stays there. He dwells there as the glory of God Himself. And most importantly for us and for the writers of the New Testament, Jesus has entered the heavenly place. He has offered His blood as the atonement for our sins. And He lives there forever to intercede for us. So that now... We can participate in his ministry of intercession for the world. Was the, consider this, consider this question. These are all nice and interesting parallels, but was the ascension really necessary? Have you ever thought about that? Was the ascension really necessary? It was important, it's significant. We see these uh, parallels with. Uh, the exodus that uh, shed light on the significance of it, but was it really essential? Wasn't the death and resurrection of Jesus enough? Because often we act as if the ascension isn't really that important. We often stop at the resurrection or maybe even stop at the cross for some Christians. But we need to go all the way through to the ascension and to Pentecost and understand the essential nature, uh, the importance of these events. Listen listen to how one Reformed theologian described the importance and the necessity of the ascension. He says, The resurrection only assures us that the penalty of death and banishment from heaven is remitted. But this is not enough. We want to know that our nature is to be admitted to an eternal dwelling place in heaven and that it is to be allowed to live forever in the presence of God above. It was this that we lost by the first Adam and it is this that we would gain by the second Adam. A mere deliverance from death and hell gives no assurance that we are certainly by this atoning Savior to be admitted hereafter to heaven. Hence, we need another stage in this magnificent work. As the first Adam was banished from the paradise below, the second Adam must openly be admitted to the paradise above and dwell there before the dread work of sin is undone and the world assured that the Son of Man has destroyed the works Of the devil. Hence, it is most obvious that the ascension was absolutely necessary. When Jesus ascended into heaven and was received by the cloud, it's as if the cherubim who had guarded the entrance into God's sanctuary sheathed their flaming swords, flung wide the gates, and rolled out the red carpet so that the King of glory could come in, leading captivity captive. We know that the Father welcomes us into His presence because He has welcomed Jesus, the God-man, into His presence. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. This is the good news of the ascension. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You accept us into Your presence because of Christ, that You hear our prayers because of Christ, that humanity is now restored into the presence of God and that we are seated with Christ In heavenly places, that you have given your church dominion to rule with Christ as priests and kings. Help us to be mindful of the great privileges that we share. Help us to be diligent in exercising our duties as your kingdom of priests, united with Christ and anointed by your Spirit. This we pray in the name of our Savior. Amen.